Hello and welcome to the Henna Hundle Show. Here on the Henna Hundle Show, we feature the world's foremost experts for groundbreaking discussion within their respective fields, spanning medicine, science, technology, business, politics, policy, law, and more. Join me, your host, Henna Hundle, on a mission to unpack and understand how contemporary high-impact issues are being tackled by the world's most influential leaders. For today's episode, we are honored to feature an interview with Her Excellency, the First Lady of Afghanistan, Rula Ghani. Her Excellency is a graduate of the American University of Beirut and Columbia University, where she studied political studies and journalism, respectively. In 2014, when Her Excellency was designated as the First Lady of Afghanistan, she became known for her passionate platform in advocating for the rights of women and for expanded opportunities for youth. Her work earned her a spot on the 2015 edition of the Time 100 Most Influential People list. Today, Her Excellency has carried forth with this empowerment and awareness work in a number of domains as she seeks to uplift the voices of Afghanistan's most marginalized groups. In particular, she is focused on breaking down gender barriers faced by Afghan women, especially those located in rural areas, and ensuring that women have opportunities to access education, health services, and leadership roles. In addition, she is a proponent of increasing literacy rates and civic engagement among Afghan youth. In our interview, Her Excellency and I will discuss some of these initiatives that she's chosen to take on, with particular attention to strategies for increasing Afghan women's and children's access to healthcare services. We will also get her thoughts on supporting refugees and internally displaced people through the unique challenges that they face around healthcare and education. Please join me now in welcoming to the program Her Excellency, the First Lady, Rula Ghani. Your Excellency, you've been recognized as an instrumental voice in the efforts to widen the horizons of possibility for Afghan women. Can you describe what you envision as the role of Afghan women in the peacebuilding process? Yes. Uh, uh, basically, before uh, pushing for the seat at the table, I was really very interested to hear what they had to say, because a lot of people, it, it was becoming the fashion to say, well, women uh, have to be part of it. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, talk uh, in uh, conferences, in <coughs> meetings and all that uh, among NGOs, but I was not seeing anything being done. And so what we proceeded to do in July of 2018 was uh, with a, uh, a group of other uh, institutions, uh, the women of the High Peace Council, uh, AWN, Afghan Women Network, uh, and uh, uh, the Ministry of Women's Affairs and the Ministry of Information and Culture, we uh, proceeded to go and consult women where they are. That means we did all 34 provinces and uh, we, um, we listened to what the women had to say. It was really pure consultation. We didn't have a, uh, prepare, a prepared text. All we had were three questions. What is peace for you? What are the obstacles to peace? And uh, how do you think we can uh, bring about peace? And we thought, you know, at least we would have some uh, information. We did get a lot. 
And uh, uh, these women, although uh, they were, uh, a lot of them may have not been literate or live in very far away, uh, far uh, uh, difficult to reach areas, uh, these women really had something to say. They had their own way of looking at things, but also it's not just women issues. It was all the issues. It was life issues that they were they were. Thinking. And if you're interested to get all the details, you can get to the uh, website of my office, which is uh, firstlady.gov.af, and uh, you will see there uh, uh, there are the reports of each problem. So basically, mm -hmm. what I feel, I, I, I work, uh, we, I mean, I, we were a whole group doing that at the end. Uh, the committee that was uh, directing this was uh, included 21 women. So uh, what we were trying to do is just to uh, uh, allow the women to have a say right? Right. <laughs> by giving them, you know, giving mm -hmm. them yeah. the and the time to say it and at the end of it we did have a national uh, uh, declaration uh, that uh, you will find also on the website mm -hmm. 15 articles and uh, so basically I don't I uh, okay let me say something I don't believe in me uh, uh, working uh, from top to bottom Mm -hmm. I believe bottom. I believe in a bottom-up approach. And besides, I don't believe that it is my place to, to uh, really do all the um, uh, the advocating, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, political work. Actually, in my website is very clear. I say I don't involve oh. myself in politics. But what I do is that I encourage the women. I give them. Uh, the opportunity to see that they know what they want to do and I give them uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, the enthusiasm to go ahead and start working within their own, uh, their own environment. And uh, one of the main ideas that we have been pushing is that we need first to have social peace before we talk about political we need to have social peace among ourselves we have come out of out of four decades of war there are so many people that still react in a very violent uh, manner we need to relearn how to be uh, uh, respectful of each other how to uh, uh, decide uh, uh, discuss uh, differences of opinions without immediately reaching to uh, uh, a military or uh, uh, or to uh, you know destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, it we we really need to uh, relearn that, and the women have an important role of doing that because this is changing the mentality of people, not just out of thin air. It's really going back to before the four decades. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky to have been married and to have lived in Afghanistan before all the troubles. And so I remember it was a very uh, harmonious society. Yes, there were frictions, but there were uh, there were lots of mechanisms to uh, to resolve them. And uh, you know, after all, Afghanistan is the, the country of Shura's 
and jirgas. And that's what they do. They sit down and they talk and they talk and they talk until they get a solution that is acceptable to all the members of the shura. So I hope that this answers this question. Yes, and so with regard to advancing the integration of Afghan women into society as agents of peace and prosperity, one crucial area of work is improving women's health outcomes, in particular maternal health. What are some steps that you think could help increase awareness efforts around women's health and ensure that healthcare in general is more accessible to Afghan women? are in the process. I mean, a lot of women are involved in that. Uh, we have a Ministry of Public Health. There, there is, there is one, uh, one concern I have is that, uh, uh, of course, all this effort started 20 years ago when, uh, uh, when uh, uh, international aid started pouring into Afghanistan. And at the time, there was no real government, and so there was a proliferation of NGOs, which is, you know, NGOs really served a purpose at the time because they uh, were able to provide services that the government at the time could not provide. Uh, somehow, the, uh, the, the mechanism of going through NGOs has remained. And I find NGOs to be... T- very um, uh, not very helpful organization uh, because uh, when when there is a government because they are uh, not sustainable every cycle they need to go back with their begging bowl and ask for money and if ever there is a money in some area and not in another uh, even let's say they uh, started being an NGO doing education or doing medical uh, thing and the next day, uh, the next year, the money they can find is for handicap. They become specialized in handicap. And this is what we see today uh, in Kabul. There is a proliferation of uh, NGOs that are all about women and peace because suddenly there is money for women and peace. Uh, uh, it's not serious. It's not serious work. And uh, the other aspect of the NGO is that they're not really accountable. It's true they have to write a report at the end of the day, but uh, uh, international aid agencies are not really very uh, critical in the, when the reports are done. They don't monitor, they don't ask questions. So a lot of them, I mean, there are some that are really doing a very good work, but a lot of them are just kind of uh, uh, very nice uh, setups for people to get uh, money, to have a... Uh, a nice car, some computers, a desk, an office, and whether or not whatever they're doing bears fruit, it doesn't really matter. And I don't think it's the right approach. So what I would say really is please help us build institutions that Mm. will provide the services that these NGOs are supposed to provide. Yes, that's a really interesting point that it's critical to have institutions working on the ground, especially as measures of accountability and protection. For example, when we think about challenges like the drug crisis and the HIV crisis, which are increasingly affecting vulnerable groups, we have to have safeguards in place or checks and balances in place to ensure that the organizations that purport to be working in service of these populations actually are doing so. 
You know, on this very topic, I wanted to get some insight from you about best practices for working with vulnerable communities like women and children. Uh, as I said, I'm never prescriptive. I engage them. I talk to them. My office do, does a few, uh, you know, events to which we uh, mm-hmm. invite them. Uh, I'm much more into uh, awareness campaigns and uh, into uh, advocacy, advocacy, advocating for those women. Um, I have a very small office. Right now we're six people. <laughs> so it's not, it's not like we're uh, a huge uh, institution. At, at our peak, we were 12 people. Uh, uh, I consider myself and the work we are doing more like uh, uh, the um, uh, the little, the small gravel that you put under the urn so that the urn doesn't fall. Uh, we just kind of uh, uh, leverage and try and find the, uh, the points of helping women mostly. Uh, I, I never understand why I have so much uh, influence on the women because uh, I don't really do grandiose things. But basically, I speak their language, I talk to them, I, I don't uh, put on mm-hmm. airs, I receive them. They are my sisters and mm-hmm. also the young people. They are my children. I, uh, I care for them and I care for, uh, uh, for them to become uh, uh, independent, to be able to stand on their own two feet. I, I encourage them to think. Uh, when they come with a problem, I often say, uh, I will not be able to tell you the solution because I don't know what your situation is. I'm not living with you. You are mm-hmm. the one who knows what are the impediments, mm-hmm. what are the possibilities, who can help you, who cannot help you. But I will be behind you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, protect you if you need protection. <laughs> I mean, it's more like a moral protection. And I think I've encouraged a lot of women. And again, I'm saying this comes from the fact that I lived in Afghanistan before the four decades of war and conflicts and uh, and violence. And I remember how society was. So I'm not trying to invent something out of thin air. I tell Mm -hmm. them, go ask your grandmothers. See what Mm. they they tell you. Uh, See how things used to be resolved before. Uh, um, so, for example, for the drugs at the time, when I first got married, dr- a drug person was looked upon, uh, looked uh, badly upon. I mean, they say, oh, he's a shartzi. Uh, so it was a very derogatory uh, term at the, uh, at the time to, to say that uh, a person is an addict. Right now, we have, unfortunately, we have, it, it's become a very big problem. It's not just a problem of women and children. It's a problem of a man too. It's a problem of returnees that come back with the habit. It's a problem of uh, traffic, uh, uh, drug trafficking that uh, is very difficult to, uh, to stop. So uh, I don't uh, pretend to know the answer, but at least I try uh, through, um, through uh, awareness and through uh, uh, offering alternatives, occupations, uh, uh, giving people hope uh, to uh, kind of uh, uh, prevent the use of drugs. 
Yes, yes. And I want to talk with you about the refugee crisis as well, because a central platform that you've adopted is bringing specialized attention to the needs of Afghanistan's most vulnerable populations, which certainly includes IDPs and returning refugees. What types of supports, technological or otherwise, would you like to see implemented to help the reintegration efforts for these people? Because there's been a new wave of interest globally, it seems, in harnessing digital solutions towards alleviating some of the strains in the crisis. And I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on that category of approach. Uh, IDPs is a very uh, old problem. I mean, in 2001, when I came back to, to Afghanistan, there were already some IDPs and uh, they keep growing. I tried at first, I thought uh, this was really a population I should target. And then uh, I found out uh, that uh, all the organization, international aid organizations, are really stuck at the level of humanitarian aid. And so that means that every year you you go to the camps, uh, you find out uh, uh, the names and numbers of people, and uh, you have it's become ridiculous because when we went first to find out what the situation when people from my my colleagues from my office went, uh, they would get uh, a uh, everybody would have the same answer. What do you need? Oh, uh, uh, two blankets, one bag. Of one bag of sugar. <laughs> I mean, they knew exactly what the international aid was going to give them. Mm-hmm. At the time when I started, that was like uh, five or six years ago, they had been doing it for 12 years. And uh, um, every year, the number of IDPs increased. I was not seeing any kind of solution. And I understood that the real solution is going to be uh, uh, to relocate the IDPs to reintegrate them in society, wherever they are. Um, And uh, when I mentioned that to um, uh, one of the heads of the the, uh, international aid organization that deal with refugees, you know, because I I did try to do uh, distribution, We, we received a small uh, uh, small aid at the time where uh, very early on in my mandate uh, five years ago and uh, there was no organization uh, government organization that could do the distribution of this aid it was for 200 people and uh, um, my husband said well why don't you try and do it yourself so I talked to all the international aid agencies because I didn't want to uh, duplicate their work and finally, we did arrive on two areas where I could do uh, the distribution. We did the distribution, so we had to do the, uh, the packing, the transport, uh, the distribution there, the checking of the, the list and all that. It's a huge effort. Uh, it took us two weeks to distribute uh, for 200 families, uh, the usual you know blankets <laughs> things and all that <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, and uh, uh, whatever we gave them was enough for two weeks so i felt really this was a lot of effort for very little uh, thing. so i told the man who was telling me well what did you think of your experience and i said well you know 
I don't think I'm going to do humanitarian aid. I think this is really more of a government problem and they should take care of uh, creating uh, new uh, cities, new uh, neighborhoods, new things for the uh, thing. They need to do development work. And uh, do you know his reaction? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, Sonny, I hope you're not going to be pu- go public with that because we're just going to go uh, start our fundraising and it will be really uh, a negative influence on uh, our capacity to raise funds. Wow. I just decided, okay, that's fine. He was a nice guy. They're trying their best, but they're doing something wrong and they kept doing it and they're still doing it. They're still, I mean, he himself left. He's no longer there, but I'm sure that there are still international aid agencies that uh, provide humanitarian aid for the IDPs. You know, you make them, uh, uh, you make them, you turn them into beggars. You don't give them a possibility of working. You don't give them skills. You don't Mm -hmm. attend to the education of their children. Uh, Usually, uh, yes, you attend to their health because there is always a clinic somewhere in the camp. But um, it's not, it's really taking, uh, just scratching the surface, not addressing the problem. Mm -hmm. And myself with my small, small office, I cannot do anything the government that needs to do it and it is uh, as far as the returnees the government does have a very solid program of reintegration that uh, uh, all the uh, internationals uh, are aware of and can contribute to Um, the only thing is that because of uh, the uh, the talk about uh, peace and uh, all these Afghans returning to Afghanistan uh, some of our neighboring countries are using the um, the refugees as bargaining chips, mm. and uh, it's becoming a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. But in terms of re- reintegrating them, I think we we had six hundred thousand that came back from Pakistan last year, and we had uh, a few hundred thousand also coming back from Iran because the situation is no longer as good there, and so a lot of Afghans are coming back. So we are doing it. We're not. I don't. Uh, I don't claim that we are doing the uh, a uh, a perfect job, but we are. We are doing it. We are having uh, reception centers. We have uh, then uh, reintegration uh, programs. Uh, uh, one thing I worked with the NHCR. I asked them to. Uh, this is one thing that uh, was really a very good idea. Uh, uh, we were discussing, and I said, "Well, how about when you have the reception, the receiving center? Uh, why don't you have a uh, a center for women, mm-hmm. kind of center for the women to come? Because usually, what they do, they provide uh, some jobs for the men. Mm-hmm. And I said, because the man goes to his job, he comes back home, and his wife has been sitting there in a totally new environment, not knowing who mm-hmm. her neighbors are." And uh, uh, of course, she's going to complain. She doesn't know where to go shopping. She doesn't know doesn't know where to what to do with the children. Whether if you start by creating a center where all the women can gather and can decide and can create a community, you really help them become much more integrated, much more quickly. So, uh, and uh, they did uh, uh, they did do a pilot that was like two years ago. And I think that now they are uh, implementing this in all the areas where they have uh, reintegration uh, 
centers. So I wanted to ask you one final question, and that is that you've also done much work to uplift the voices of Afghan youth who face an array of challenges presently, including accessing educational opportunities and then finding gainful employment. Moving forward, what are some ways that we can better invest in young Afghans' education in a model that perhaps emphasizes preparedness to enter the 21st century marketplace of jobs and innovation? Uh, My answer to that is teach them to be entrepreneurs. Mm. Uh, Yes, everybody cannot be uh, finding a job in the government. And that's the dream of everyone here. They all want a job in the government. Well, we're 36 million people, and the government is probably a few hundred thousand, if if at all. So, um, no, I think the best way, Afghanistan is potentially a very rich country. Afghanistan is also a turning uh, a, a roundabout of uh, trade. I mean, uh, our ancestors have been trading to all corners of the world from Afghanistan. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of, but the check, the writing a check, uh, really started in this area. Mm. It's uh, writing a a promissory note or whatever uh, they call it. I don't know all the technical details. Mm. But uh, trade was something that was a very part of the the economic uh, life of uh, this area. So I think what it is, is that we need to encourage to have more programs that teach the children to, uh, um, children in school. We already have one program, but it's only in 40 schools and we have thousands of schools. <laughs> uh, it's called Tashabos, which means entrepreneurship in uh, um, in uh, mm-hmm. And I think that uh, at least this is uh, a proof of concept because they have reached uh, I don't know uh, uh, maybe uh, 200,000 children over the several years that they have been functioning out of them 60% now have a business so they know how to do it they do it wow. uh, grade 10, 11, 12 so uh, uh, they have a whole system they have proved it they've done it for several years uh and it's uh and right now they it started it started as a sip uh, project sip uh, being uh, an american uh, uh, american government organization i think anyway you can find it at cip but mm-hmm. anyway slowly they have been weaned out and now they receive just uh, uh, i think a hundred thousand dollars a year from somewhere else they found another source but for the work they're doing, and there are just five people doing it. I mean, uh, I am against this huge organization where you have like 200 people coming mm-hmm. to program and, uh, and uh, to make sure that we do this and do that and not even listening to what the people need. These mm-hmm. five people are working in 41 uh, uh, schools and uh, every year they um, they uh, choose five uh, different uh, uh, projects, uh, proposal from the uh, from the uh, students, and uh, uh, they help them set up their business. But even those who have not been helped 
have understood that they can do things on their own. And it can, can start with something very small, and then it grows. We are at a time where the economy is just starting in Afghanistan. We are at, uh, you know, the first uh, level. So uh, uh, there are so many opportunities, so many services that need to be uh, attended to, uh, so many things that people can do. I know, for example, of a young man who wanted to help uh, 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 widows uh, who did not have uh, work. And so he, he told them, okay, um, uh, we'll, we'll cook for you the food and we'll give you carts and you go and sell the food and, and uh, uh, the, you can make like this some money every day. Uh, he started. There was a problem because uh, the women would call him, oh, the cart is stuck, I can't push it or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, being a smart guy, he uh, attached a solar power <clears throat> and uh, with the... With the uh, the engine of uh, of, uh, of used uh, motorcycle. He creates a little engine that pushes the cart at a uh, at a very slow pace, but which helps the women because then they only have to steer. And uh, he has like this. I don't know. Uh, it's he just started about a year ago, and I think he already has over fifty widows that are working on that. Wow. And they're and they're really very happy. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of opportunities that can uh, come, but you need to, to you need to open the eyes of the people themselves and mm-hmm. say, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. So this is why I say is teaching people how to be entrepreneur, how to find an idea, and mm-hmm. how to try it. And it's okay if you fail. You start yes. small. If you fail, it's okay. You fail. You probably have put in a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars. You will recuperate, sir. You try again. You try mm-hmm. again. And, and you know, uh, you. Uh, I remember that girl I I met uh, uh, early in my mandate, like four or five years ago, and she had realized that there is wholesale and there is detail. And she used to go and buy wholesale in one. She uh, she she took a loan from her from her uh, relatives of ten thousand Fs, which probably is maybe around a hundred dollars now. And uh, um, and she went and bought these things, and then she did door to door selling, and she recuperated the money after the second time, the third time she didn't need any more any loan. And she uh, at the time I don't know I have lost. Track, track of her. But at the time I met her, she already had two businesses, she had uh, one school, and she her big hope was to be able to uh, uh, build a factory of uh, uh, doing spaghetti and macaroni. You know, <laughs> you teach them how to mm-hmm. you know, show them the way. And there are a lot of them that have, I mean, there is this uh, expression that's often used here in Afghanistan, but uh, not often attacked. Teach them how to f- uh, how to fish. Don't get mm, yes, that, yes, that yes. Sentence. Teach them and teach them. They don't need to have huge thing to start with. Those who have the capacity and the ability will start doing very big things themselves. And that was an interview with Her Excellency Rula Ghani, the first lady of Afghanistan. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from our conversation about the role of Afghan women in the peace-building process 
about strategies for assisting Afghanistan's most vulnerable populations, and about improving women's health care. To learn more about Her Excellency's initiatives and to keep up to date with her work, you can visit her website at www.firstlady.gov.af. You have been listening to The Hannah Hundel Show. I'm your host, Hannah Hundel, and I thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.